Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And I'm afraid it didn't come across to me as the speech of a government that expects to be in power in a year's time. What we're not seeing is anyone willing to put their hand up and say, you know what, in the heat of this public health emergency, I think I may have made a few bad decisions. The left in this country is very quick to pounce on anything that might be racist, except when it's in their own ranks. I'd sum it up like this, Alison. I've been covering Queen's speeches and now King's speeches for 30 years, and I can't remember one that's made less of a splash. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Saturday this weekend, Alison. But far from the precious annual rituals of poppies, gratitude and a dignified two-minute silence for our war dead at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, which we grew up with and which holds a sacred place in the nation's collective memory, it looks like this year's remembrance ceremonies could be mired in conflict. The escalation of violence in the Middle East after Hamas terrorists killed 1,400 Israeli civilians on October the 7th before taking over 200 hostages is spilling out way beyond the region and has landed very much on our shores. We've seen successive weekends of pro-Palestinian protests in central London and elsewhere, with fewer arrests, the organisers claim, or is that because the police are showing too much latitude and are scared to arrest? Certainly there's a widespread view that Metropolitan Police boss Sir Mark Rowley should prevent yet another Palestinian protest this weekend to avoid the possibility of ghastly clashes at the Whitehall Cenotaph. For many, the very idea of scuffles and fights at this most sacred of monuments on the day we honour our glorious dead men and women who gave their lives to save Europe from Nazism is simply too outrageous to risk. We need to discuss this week's King's Speech, Alice, and the government's new legislative agenda. We need to talk about the prospects for the UK economy. But you've written a powerful piece in The Telegraph about your thoughts on what should happen this Saturday. So let's start with that. Well, Liam, this is a very fast-moving story. We are recording on Wednesday afternoon, and by the time you're listening to this, it's possible that the pro-Palestine march on Saturday will have been banned. It's very much in the air. As we're recording, Sir Mark Reilly, Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, has been summoned to number 10. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said earlier today that the march scheduled for Saturday, not to be confused with the National Memorial, which will happen at the Cenotaph on Sunday. Prime Minister's called it disrespectful and provocative. And he also said, Liam, which was rather wonderful, I thought, that he will be holding the chief of the Met accountable for allowing the pro-Palestinian demonstration to go ahead should there be any trouble. Now, translated from the prime ministries, that means 
on your own head, be it mate, I think. And for his part, Sir Mark has said that no law exists to stop the protest and a ban would only happen if intelligence evolves in coming days to suggest a threat of serious disorder. Now, there's a lot of potential for this kicking off co-pilot. We've seen some pretty lacklustre policing. We'll dig down into that in a minute. But it does seem that several of the organisers behind these marches, which we will be on our fifth pro-Palestine march this Saturday, and a few of the organisers of the various different groups involved appear to be not just pro-Hamas, Liam, but actually former Hamas leaders, which will give you some idea of why the strong stench of anti-Semitism has been coming off these marches. Now, I announced in my column in The Telegraph this week that I and a few friends are going to be gathering on Saturday morning at 10am by Winston Churchill's statue in Parliament Square. And I'm going there to honour the veterans who will be at the Cenotaph, obviously, and to honour all those people who gave their lives so that we could remain a free country, but also to express my dismay at the anti-Semitic tone of the marches, which have seemed to me to be appallingly tone deaf and disrespectful, and also to stand up with other British people for the traditions of our country, which the Metropolitan Police doesn't seem to be particularly minded to defend. And before we go to you, co-pilot, let me just read one small bit that I wrote. How could you explain it to the fallen whose pale yet valiant spirits hover still over the cenotaph? Dear chaps, you know you gave your life to extinguish the genocidal Jew-hating monsters of Nazi Germany. Well, we're frightfully sorry, but the day we pay homage to your sacrifice is likely to be rudely interrupted by the supporters of Jew-hating genocidal monsters, the very opposite of a virtuous circle, you might say. Do you remember, Alison, a few weeks ago in the immediate aftermath of the atrocities on October the 7th, we talked a little bit about Wembley Stadium, didn't we? Yeah. Up there in northwest London, where I grew up, the borough of Brent, very high Muslim population. The, the local council in Brent, they didn't want to illuminate the Wembley Arch in the colours of the Israeli flag, blue and white, because they were worried about the local population, to coin a phrase, kicking off. Well, I think we have seen these protests kick off already. I, I mean, the protesters say that they've been almost entirely non-violent with very few arrests. Some of the social media clips that I've seen mm. have been truly shocking. It doesn't look like a, a protest in central London. It looks more like a protest in the Middle East. And you've really seen a cultural clash between that kind of fundamentalist protest style and the consent-driven policing that the UK practices the thin blue line, which we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, is mm. now very close to cracking. You wrote in your column, and it's a particularly powerful column, the link is in the show notes to this episode, about a young police officer when asked why they weren't arresting these guys who were shouting and women who were shouting intifada now and jihad. The police officer glumly said, because there's more of them than there are of us. <laughs> we are now in the realms where reasonable, moderate people are saying, Surely the time for cops in soft hats and truncheons has stopped and we need 
troops on the streets. I, I can't even believe that I'm saying that. No. But this is really, really serious. In my small market town that you know well, yeah. the other day I popped into the pub and I'm having a chat. And the great thing about lovely market towns is that the pubs are full of all kinds of people from local tradesmen to people that come up to London and do their thing on financial markets to farmers, a wonderful cross-section of English society, of British society. And I heard reasonable guys in the pub, people younger than me, people of, quotes fighting age, saying, if there's going to be a protest on Remembrance Saturday and on Remembrance Sunday, I'm going to go up and I'm going to defend the Cenotaph. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is really serious stuff. Yeah. British people have got a long fuse, you know, G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, very. We have not spoken yet and all the rest of it. But do the politicians understand how high emotions could run here? And even saying this, describing it in what I hope is an accurate way, the conversations I heard from people I've known a long time who are moderate people, who are professional people in some cases, they've been shocked at the picture which you described so brilliantly of a group of three dignified elderly people yeah. working for the British Legion, selling poppies, being absolutely encircled by pro-Palestinian protesters. None of this is to say that conversations shouldn't be had about the various merits and historical nuances and intricacies of a Gordian knot of a complex situation in Israel as we grapple to, is it a two-state solution or who knows what it is now? It's so confusing, even for professional journalists like us who follow these things for a living and relatively closely. But that image of those Three elderly people right. selling poppies for the British Legion, pennies that then go towards paying for the uh, welfare of often abandoned veterans, men and women who've served in our armed forces yeah. and so on. It was a horrendous picture and it will have generated an enormous amount of anger. I know it has from mm -hmm. people I've spoken to in my own small market town among law-abiding, moderate, tolerant people who are more than willing to look at Israel-Palestine from both ends of the telescope, and yet they are angered, they are incensed. Surely this protest should be shelved. Well, I think, Liam, you can judge what's going on in the national mood, which you've so brilliantly described at your pub, is there is deep cynicism. People like me who are going to be there on Saturday morning are already being described as far-right yobs. Now, you know your co-pilot well, don't you? <laughs> I mean, she can be tenacious, a little fiery at times. I suspect there are going to be a lot of people, and you know, well-turned-out, smart people. But people I've had on social media and in my 3,000 comments under my Telegraph column about this saying, oh, the police will be quick to pounce on us when we're there speaking for the silent majority. They can't be bothered or they're too scared to arrest people shouting pro-Hamas slogans and terrifying Jewish people. Just quick interjection, Liam. I actually did an event on Monday for the National Jewish Assembly. I was Zoom calling with many, many London Jewish people. They were terrific people. And at one point I said, how many would be too scared to go into the centre of London? And there was complete silence and they all raised their hands. And I was just 
sad and ashamed and upset. So one reason I'm going to be a far right yob on Saturday is for them, really. But let's acknowledge the complexity. So there will be many people among those marchers who will be there for humanitarian reasons. They are very, very upset by absolutely horrible pictures from Gaza with apparently this uh, Hamas is claiming 10,000 dead. We don't know what the exact total is, but we do know it's a big total. And we do also know that many of those people, completely innocent civilians being used as shields in the most disgusting way by the terrorists who have implanted their headquarters in hospitals and nursery schools and so on. So there will be absolute bona fide marchers, very compassionate people who incredibly upset, particularly by what looks like a disproportionate display of force by the Israeli military. But I'm afraid we also know now for sure that there are extremist, Islamist people behind these marches. So you've got that two things going on in that march, compassion and humanity, which is the British way, and something quite other, which is wanting to stir up racism and hatred. And as we know, Liam, the left in this country is very quick to pounce on anything that might be racist, except when it's in their own ranks, when suddenly it's just just a few rotten apples, you know, taken out of context. I saw footage of a young British woman carrying a flag with a picture of the Israeli flag in a bin and a human being in the bin. And it said, dirty Jews, right? That's not taken out of context. That's Berlin, 1937. That's disgusting. That that phrase is just full of... That's just full of absolute horror. Historic warning. (laughs) Just to quickly say, so this feeble policing now, this commissioner, big question mark over whether the police are capable of policing. And the Metropolitan Police wrote a message to the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. We ask organisers to consider postponing any demonstration in London this armistice weekend. So they were that wasn't sufficient for the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, which basically came back very affronted, saying we've been meeting with the police regularly. We've made clear which route we're going to be going on. We're very disappointed in you. The police, they said, listen to this, we recognise the political pressure being placed on the police by the government and right-wing political groups, aka the bulk of the British population. However, we emphasise that they have a responsibility to withstand that pressure and act to protect democratic freedoms, including the right to protest. So here we are, absolutely caught between two things, which is the national impulse, which is to allow protest, to allow freedom of speech, of course, because that's the kind of country we are. And then we have a group, an aggrieved and aggressive minority, which is willing to use that against us and enfeebling our response. So I really think, Liam, and, you know, I'm going to be down there with friends and some from the British Friends of Israel group. Could it turn nasty? The people you described are thinking, right, if they're going to go for our cenotaph, if they're going to go for our veterans, if the police won't police, the public will have to step in. And that's what happened, Liam, historically. I think you probably know in the Cable Street protests, which were anti-Jewish. Against Mosley's black shirt. It was the local, you know, EastEnders who went and saw the fascists off. It was a combination of local Jewish people who were being persecuted. They got Irish muscle from the docks. Yeah. I mean, I've spoken at great length and, and read lots about 
collaboration between working class Irish and Jewish people against fascism in their 30s. It really is quite an incredible story because they felt they had common enemy, didn't they? Yes. It may be, as you rightly say, by the time this edition of Planet Normal is released into the wild, if you like, it may be that the Met has agreed to make sure this march doesn't happen. The Met, they're saying the pro-Palestinian march won't go near the Cenotaph, but it will go within a few hundred metres of it. And it's completely clear that, as you wrote, under Section 13 of the 1986 Public Order Act, you can stop marches happening. You can ban them for up to three months. Under Section 12 and 14 of the same Act, you can put rigorous conditions on marches, including where they can and can't take place. And those sections have a much lower threshold. So the the law is there. I mean, it seems so much of the law is just being circumvented. The Section 12 of the Terrorism Act 2000 makes it a crime to openly support Hamas. Section 13 of the same act makes it a crime to wear something or display something which makes people reasonably suspect you support Hamas as a prescribed organisation. That's absolutely clear. Why is Rowley saying that he doesn't have the power Mm. to stop this? I just don't understand. It's just disingenuous. Unless I'm getting something wrong and I don't wish to be unfair to him or the Met. They've got a tough job but i don't understand why they're saying this can't be stopped well we know that in 2011 theresa may's government banned marches by the edl the english defense league and that was going to be through tower hamlets and obviously and bethnal green and that would have been incredibly provocative because there's a high muslim population there so they were perfectly capable of doing it when they wanted to christians against anti-semitism that i've been in touch with a week or so ago they were going to have a prayer walk through golders green which is a jewish neighborhood and the metropolitan police told them to cancel it because they wouldn't be able to guarantee the safety of the not just Christian marchers, but any decent people who wanted to stick up for Jews at this difficult time. So they've had to cancel two pro-Jewish events because the Met said they couldn't guarantee their safety. And I'd also say how sad it is that we've got to this place because, as we've often pointed out on Planet Normal, many, many years of global attitude, public attitude surveys from the Pew Institute and others show that there's barely any country in Europe or the world that's got the UK tolerance towards and welcome to immigrant communities. I mean, far more than Germany, France, Italy, Spain, far more than Sweden. The only two other countries in the world that compare in terms of attitude, positive attitude towards immigration, are Canada and New Zealand. Yet in recent years, Obviously, the pace, particularly post the Brexit vote, has picked up, Mm. and that's upset a lot of moderate people. And then the way regional conflicts then spill over with so-called heritage communities in the UK playing out those regional conflicts in the streets of our cities is obviously completely unacceptable. So this is a major, major problem. So we'll see what... Mark Rowley does. We'll see what happens on Saturday. Let's just briefly mention the King's speech. It is important. Ordinarily, we'd be absolutely majoring on the King's speech, wouldn't we? Mm. Because it is the government legislative agenda, the last King's speech, almost certainly before the next general election. Over a third of the bills in the speech were what we call retreads. So they'd already been presented in previous loyal addresses and they hadn't actually been launched as bills and enacted But what really caught my eye was this oil and gas thing. Sorry to do such a hard handbrake turn, but this was Rishi Sunak really trying to 
put some clear blue water between himself and the Labour Party. So you'll remember that several weeks ago, Rishi Sunak said that he would allow new drilling licences in the North Sea. And there was a round of them. And there are around 300 drilling licences in the North Sea, but over half of them expire by 2030. And we still get 75% of our energy in this country from oil and gas. And a huge slice of our oil and gas does come from the North Sea. And Rishi Sunak doubled down on that because that seemed to give him a little bump up in the polls and made it difficult for Labour and Keir Starmer because a lot of the trade unions want drilling licences in the North Sea too, particularly the GMB, the third biggest union. They've got a lot of employees who work in the North Sea. Mm. And a lot of people in Scotland want drilling licences in the North Sea. Scotland's biggest industry centred on Aberdeen, of course. So Sunak's doubled down on that as a kind of wedge issue to upset Labour because now he's saying we're going to actually have annual renewals of drilling licences in the North Sea. They're usually sort of biannual. So he's not only going to allow new drilling licences in the North Sea, he's saying he's going to up the pace or at least up the opportunity to give new drilling licences. And it seems to me this makes, you know, aside from the politics of it, which is by the by, I guess, it, it makes a lot of economic and strategic sense to me because we are going to need oil and gas it's currently, as I say, 75% of our energy needs. It's going to be at least 50% of our energy needs in the next decade or two as we move towards renewables. And that's according to the Climate Change Committee, which is the government's in-house sort of pro-green mm. route to net zero watchdog that's got a legal right to try and convince the government to do things that move us towards net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Even they are saying we're going to need lots of oil and gas in the decades to come. So if we're going to need lots of oil and gas, let's use our own because then we get the wealth, we get the tax revenue. But even more importantly, if you want to stress the environmental case, and it is important, if we import liquefied natural gas from America, which we're increasingly doing, there are six times more carbon emissions connected Mm. to that than there are if we use our own gas. Mm. Why? Because you have to drill the gas in America, you have to turn it into a liquid, massive energy, you have to put it into a tanker, diesel, 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, you have to regasify it here in the UK. I mean, all that uses up immense amounts of energy. It's crazy, even if you're an environmentalist, first and foremost, to not use North Sea oil and gas, given that we're going to need oil and gas. I think you're right. I think it's obviously one of his better issues he's got to use as a wedge issue with Labour, isn't it? Because Labour said it will honour licences granted before any general election, but no new ones. I mean, they're still living in green cuckoo land, really, aren't they? I have to say, Liam, that I mean, this was the first King's speech in 70 years because Charles's mother lived so long. And I think objectively, it was pretty thin gruel. This was Rishi's last chance to show the country and his party why we could be excited about the prospect of a fifth term of conservative government. And I'm afraid it didn't come across to me as the speech of a government that expects to be in power in a year's time. There was one very exciting pledge, which is to crack down on London's rickshaws or pedicabs, as they're known. The voters of Mansfield talk of nothing else, Halligan. Let's ban those pedicabs. There was a bit of red meat on crime and punishment, powers to force defendants to attend their sentencing hearing, which obviously cropped up as an issue during the sentencing of Lucy Letby. Tougher sentencing, you know, whole life orders 
for murders. Certain categories of murder never qualify for parole. Rapists and other serious sexual offenders no longer qualify for early release. But of course, in the background to that pledge, which would appeal to the conservative voters if there indeed there are any left, was the government trying to square the circle because of prison overcrowding. So promising longer sentences when you haven't got any prison cells is quite the issue. So they did have this presumption against using jail for sentences lower than 12 months. They were hoping that would lead to 30,000 fewer people a year being jailed. So that's very much to do with relieving the pressure on prisons, which they should have been doing arguably by building more. But Liam, I thought to me, it was everything that wasn't in that speech, you know, nothing on pensions, nothing about the dire situation in social care, no mental health, no NHS reform. Did you think it was a bit of a kind of sputtering at the end of an era? I'd sum it up like this, Alison. I've been covering Queen's speeches and now King's speeches for 30 years, and I can't remember one that's made less of a splash. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. COVID inquiry is still wending its long, leisurely and apparently utterly pointless way through the story of the pandemic. Many Planet Normal listeners will, like me, have been yelling at Baroness Hallett and her 5,000 lawyers, ask the right questions for God's sake. Well, this week's guests on Planet Normal, that's guests plural, have asked the right questions and come up with some extraordinary answers. Molly Kingsley, familiar to Planet Normal listeners from the Us For Them parents organisation, Arabella Skinner, also from Us For Them, and Ben Kingsley, brilliant lawyer, married to Molly, have written a forensic account of everything that happened during the pandemic. And it is called the accountability deficit. How ministers and officials evaded accountability, misled the public and violated democracy during the pandemic. It's a remarkable piece of work. So I thought we'd get the three of them onto the rocket to tell us what they'd found out. I began by asking Molly Kingsley, in what way does she believe that the public was misled? By this point, we're all very aware of the really two-year campaign of fear and propaganda that we were all subjected to. 
I have to say, though, in documenting and researching specific examples for the book, we were still shocked by some of the things we came across. So, you know, we think we are relatively expert in this. There were still things that we found that really surprised us. So the government communications were founded on an exaggerated understanding and threat of the risk of COVID. And I think the harms of interventions have consistently been downplayed, whilst their possible benefits have been overstated. Bella, the book paints a disturbing picture of an almost overnight authoritarian state. And as Molly's just described, it was shocking reading it to be reminded of how quickly these things took over our country. How would you say democracy was violated? If we go back to that first main week in Parliament, so the week around the 23rd of March, we have a couple of major moments that happen there. And one of the biggest ones is the choice of legislation. It sounds really dull, but it's incredibly important. You know, the government had the option to use the Civil Contingency Act. And indeed, Boris Johnson, in some of his evidence that we've now seen from his witness statement, says that perhaps they should have done that because that would have allowed more scrutiny. It gives you Parliament has to look at things within seven days. But they chose to go down a completely different route. They chose to go with the Public Health Act. And they chose to enact that after Parliament was in recess. So you're talking six weeks before anyone could actually question or challenge or look at that, which, which, which is huge when you think about it. Ben, let me come to you. The book is full of jaw-dropping examples of the way that things, for example, like a vaccine mandate for care homes, were basically whisked through Parliament. How did you discover that you thought ministers and officials had managed to evade accountability? Well, sadly, Alison, it's not just a historical issue. And we're seeing today with the inquiries approach that ministers and officials continue to evade accountability because the right questions are not being asked. And in a sense, that's illustrative of what happened during the pandemic as well. It's not that there were no accountability mechanisms in place. But we saw time and again that ministers and some of their senior officials just didn't take them seriously. And unfortunately, Parliament and the Cabinet actually didn't do enough to make them behave any differently. So we found many instances of ministers excluding the Cabinet from really key decisions and of being very ready, surprisingly ready to deflect or mislead or misdirect select committees when they were asking pertinent questions about decisions and policy choices. Ben, isn't there an element? I mean, Liam's and my trade, the media didn't cover ourselves in glory. I mean, if ministers are behaving as you say they were, where was the scrutiny from the media? More could, more should have been done. But as we've all come to realise in the past months, there was an industrial complex play. The government was very involved in controlling what was being reported, what was being released out to the press. They were manipulating the picture that even the press was allowed to see. And so to an extent, it's understandable that the press didn't feel able to do more to hold ministers to account. But at the core of all of this is, a, as we as, as we document across the book, it's a both a failure of our parliamentarians to do more to hold our ministers to account. And it's, I think, a you know, moral and ethical failure of those ministers, the, the way they behaved. Planet Normal listeners may not know this, but the COVID inquiry, as it was set up originally, was not even going to address how children had been affected 
by lockdown. But thanks to you guys, the suffering of kids, the mental health trauma, wrecked education, tics, anorexia, you name it, the devastation goes on and on, have now deemed to be at least of some interest to Lady Hallett. Molly, you previously published The Children's Inquiry. What was it that propelled you to write this new report? I think the children's inquiry was really born out of our experience of living the pandemic period, really on the front line, if that isn't overstating it. I mean, we came out of that period with thousands, really, of very personal, often very upsetting accounts about how the lives of children within our network had been directly impacted and, you know, made us think, well, someone has to get this down on record. And a few of us, Ben and I, have legal backgrounds and we thought, well, maybe time to put those backgrounds to good use and really crawl through the evidence and just get down as a matter of public record how serious and how widespread these failures are. And I think it's very important to us to do that and it's important for us to do that so we can correct course. You know, this has been a tragic period of misgovernance and it is not a status quo we are prepared to accept for ourselves or our children. Bella, can I ask you, having gone through the pandemic again with a fine tooth comb, what stood out and what scares you most? I think what scares me most is how quickly we all agreed to it and we all accepted it. And I would count myself absolutely in that until it much came much further on. But really going through this in detail, I think it was the number of times there was no impact assessment for what was happening. So we as us for them asked consistently for impact assessments. And now we're discovering that Boris Johnson, who of let's remember was the Prime Minister at the time, was asking in the autumn, can we have some evidence of the the long-term cost to health and well-being of the lockdown strategy. How does it compare to the loss of life from COVID? It's mind-blowing that in autumn 20, he didn't have that information. And it's mind-blowing that the COVID inquiry and the fact that the way it's been reported in the last week by the media, that this is considered something weird that he should be asking for. Because fundamentally, we shouldn't be doing anything unless we know what the impact's going to be. And when you go through in detail, we know that from from our work, that masks in class, we know that they happened because they didn't want to have an argument with Nicola Sturgeon. And we know that there was no risk assessment until January 21. So 17 months after it happened. And we had done three pre-action letters by this point to ask for this information. So it wasn't that people weren't asking. But when they actually produced it, it was a really weak piece of work, which basically the positives were how people felt wearing them. You go and look at things like the social care bill, where they insist on vaccine mandates for people within social care. It's required by law that an impact assessment actually has to be there. It wasn't there. It was not produced. And it came through and was passed as Lord the Lords actually described it as an example of particularly poor practice. Ben, some of what you've uncovered in the accountability deficit sounds a lot like gross negligence to me. Everything from delayed hospital treatments, cancers allowed to spread in younger people when the hospitals were shut. If a private company had caused that kind of damage to people, there would be legal actions. And in fact, we are seeing lawsuits beginning now in various states in America. Ben, what do you think 
is the legal position here? Are the government and pharmaceutical companies indemnified against prosecution? Is there anything that can be done here in the UK? It's right, Alice. I agree that there are things we've uncovered here that to the, the lay reader, to the lay listener, you know, sound awfully like at the best negligence and at worst something darker still. We're not in the same position as in the US where there are rights that can be exercised under the constitution there and legal actions have been launched off the back of that. It is feasible to presume that there may be instances where ministers or officials have behaved in such a way as to create liabilities for themselves. But the reality, I'm afraid, is that I just don't see that as a realistic outcome in the near term. The first instance is the inquiry. The inquiry is intended to be an inquisitive process rather than a prosecutorial process, of course. But it is proving not to be very inquisitive. It's more an inquisition than an inquiry. And so, you know, if that's setting the tone for our approach to thinking about reconciliation after the event of looking at what the consequences should be, I think it's hopeless to think that we'll get to a stage where there'll be any official appetite to bring individuals to book. But the other question you raise there is whether the public has any right to bring some form of legal action. That's a, a nice aspiration. Unfortunately, for the most part, you know, we just don't have those rights. We don't have the right to sue a minister for making terrible decisions, unethical decisions. And perhaps we should do. And that's something we begin to contemplate in the book, actually, is how we might create a new uh, culture of accountability Molly, you talk about the fact in the book that the government monitored your public articles, including those published in the Daily Telegraph, and your tweets for a period of nearly two years. Can you tell us who authorised that spying on you, and is it still ongoing? I think the first thing to say on that is, by its nature, censorship is very opaque. So, you don't really know that it's going on at the time. We certainly had no idea. It was obvious, you know, as the pandemic continued, that we were getting odd warnings on social media accounts. And really, it was only when the story about the counter disinformation unit broke, I believe, at the beginning of this year, that we thought, well, hang on, you know, if people such as David Davis, Silky Carlo, I think Julia Hartley Brewer had been monitored. You kind of, well, I wonder if we were. So, you know, as it's now public, we submitted Freedom of Information Act requests, essentially. And lo and behold, both I and Bella as well were on a very long list. I mean, you know, my list of entries was three or four pages long. It was huge. And what transpired is that the CDU, which is this quite secret unit of what was then the DCMS, had been monitoring what we'd been saying, what we'd been saying publicly, both on social media and in various newspapers. In fact, this unit was stood up very transparently um, by ministers right at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was cheered on by parliamentary select committees. So there was this idea that, of course, you would want to censor what was objective um, scientific disinformation in a pandemic. And that was the advertised purpose of this unit. Now, you can argue about whether or not that is a good thing. But you can certainly see an argument, you know, even as someone who has been censored effectively, that, that censoring outright lies during a pandemic, lies that might be dangerous, might be legitimate. 
However, as soon as you get into it, what becomes obvious is that one person's scientific truth is another person's disinformation. And obviously the idea of the science changes over time. In any case, when we received our lists back of articles and posts that had been monitored, it was very clear that it was nothing to do with disinformation. You know, the lists are huge and they extend from things like me saying it would be unforgivable to claim schools for a second time. Um, you know, millions of people would agree with that. Let children use playgrounds. How is that disinformation? So it was a huge list of things like this. And the government would say, well, we were only monitoring those things. But we know that's not true because what happened here was the CDU, this unit, would refer posts like this to the social media companies. And by their own admission, 90% of posts flagged by the CDU were taken down. So that's censorship. And if you read through what has been said about this in select committees and in evidence, yes, it is still ongoing. It is very much ongoing. And what makes it more worrying is that, if anything, it's about to be turbocharged because we have the online safety bill, which you know I know a lot of us are very concerned about, which will certainly not lessen the impact of this. And we also have various developments internationally, particularly with the WHO's pandemic treaty, which really seek to hardwire in this idea that anything that possibly could be disinformation, which by the way, is really just contrarian and inconvenient narratives, can be taken down. Bella, the COVID inquiry has been attracting quite a lot of criticism. What's your idea about what's going on there? Is it cock up or cover up? What do you think? I think when you think about what's happened over the last couple of years, you end up with people so entrenched with their viewpoint, they almost can't see any other viewpoint. And that's what's so terrifying, actually, that anytime you challenge and anytime you question anything, people are not open to that questioning. And I think if I look back to the very, very beginning of the pandemic, there is a moment when the Speaker stood up in Parliament and said to MPs, I understand that you want to fulfil your duty to hold government to account. However, I urge members to think twice before tabling parliamentary questions. And I think that exemplifies the idea that everyone has an entrenchment with their own viewpoint of where it's going, and they're not prepared to challenge and question. And from my point of view, I, I think that is where the inquiry is going. Ben, is there now a case for an alternative inquiry, do you think? Absolutely, in a word, yes. I, I don't personally feel that the inquiry is doing any good. As I said before, it feels like an inquisition, not an inquiry. You know, it's revering the true believers in the narrative that's being pedestaled there, and it's you know attempting to humiliate the heretics. Uh, and it, it strikes me as a pointless exercise. There certainly is a case for some alternative. And as to what that would look like, well, ideas are beginning to percolate. Certainly, we have ideas about that. I think, though, that there would be a real, a genuine, strong appetite among many in this country to get to the bottom of what happened, to get to a place where we can understand what has gone wrong. And it's not fair to say everything has gone wrong. Some things went right. But what we're not seeing is anyone willing to put their hand up and say, you know what, in the heat of this public health emergency, I think I may have made a few bad decisions. No one's willing to admit that. And that's what we really need to get to is a point where there can be a candid, honest, transparent, inquisitive exploration of the facts rather than a stage managed theatre. 
that we're seeing today. Thank you so much for this brilliant piece of work. The accountability deficit will be published in the next few weeks, still awaiting a date. You will be able to buy it on Amazon. And I think it should now become the official logbook of the Planet Normal rocket. It's such a brilliant account of the madness and turbulence we went through together. So enormous thanks from all of us to Molly, Bella and Ben for being our guests on Planet Normal. Well, Alison, I thought that was a tour de force by a trio of heroes, really. The Accountability Deficit by Molly Kingsley, Ben Kingsley and Arabella Skinner. It's coming out in a few weeks. And I know the book and its contents will be closely followed by The Telegraph and indeed covered in our news pages. Yeah, they've done a really important job, Liam, and I think that listeners are going to absolutely love it because it goes to the heart of so much that we've been trying to do on, on Planet Normal. So good one for the Christmas stocking, I think. I think now we're going to need some kind of alternative inquiry. There yeah. really is disconsternation at the circus of an inquiry that we seem to be having. Endless ranks of taxpayer-funded lawyers sitting there Huge amounts of grandstanding by the KCs asking questions about WhatsApp messages, trying to get themselves into the newspapers and build their social media followings, I guess. Maybe that's a bit unfair, but I don't think so, because we need the answer to some very, very important questions. Were we right to lock down? Was Sweden right? Was China right? The two extremes of a much looser lockdown or no lockdown on the one hand and really authoritarian lockdown on the other. What do we do when we face another pandemic? That's what we need to be looking at, not a blame game, not a dartboard where we're trying to spear politicians. These are really, really serious questions. I'm deeply disappointed at the inquiry so far. We do need an alternative inquiry, an inquiry that calls people from a range of opinions and backgrounds, not least the likes of Shinetra Gupta, the Oxford epidemiologist and other co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which was for more discretionary shielding, which many people, including many, many scientists, think would have been a much better way to go. Now it's time for our listener emails, the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Starting off with a stonking one, very topical actually, from Father Joseph, not his real name. Dear Alison and Liam, spoiler alert, rant. <laughs> rant. We fit right in here with us, Father Joseph. Father Joseph says, having got on the first train at Heathrow last Saturday on my way to Abbey Wood, I thought it might be a nice change to go off at Tottenham Court Road rather than Whitechapel, have a cheeky pint and then get a direct train from Charing Cross. No such luck. The centre of London was like what I imagine Berlin to have been like in 1935, the only difference being the colour of the flags. The sentiments are the same. Due hatred. It is terrifying. Charing Cross Station was closed. Why? A fascist mob can prevent decent people having a nice night out in what was once a lovely place. But those who want to get away from the mob can't because the police closed the station. Why didn't they clear the mob instead? Since when were things so upside down? This country has become a very sad place to be. Mob rule. So many young people in the crowds there, evidencing the utter lack of historical education in our schools. Do they even teach history anymore? 
And as for queers for Palestine placards, no joke, give them a holiday in Gaza and let them have all they deserve. I write as a gay man and an Anglican priest, but what a bunch of ignorant lefty tossers. Eventually, I made my way up the strand and got on the train at Waterloo. Thank God. But oh dear, where are we going? You have given me and my partner a weekly lifeline since the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm so glad that you've continued to give a reasoned view on all that is going on when all around seems to be caught up in incontestable orthodoxy. You get me through the gym every Thursday. I never start my workout before 11 a.m. Keep going, please, says Father Joseph. I should just add, Liam, that I will be with a group of people, some Telegraph readers. And if any Planet Normal listeners want to join me, I will be at the feet of Winston Churchill at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, carrying a copy of the Daily Telegraph. This is from Bob the Bard, who, of hey. course, wrote, are you paying more? Ground floor, <laughs> haberdashery, accessory. <laughs> what fun we had. How mad that was. Dear Alison and Liam, I just wanted to thank you both for your fantastic performance of Are You Paying More? If you don't know what we're talking about, go back to last week's Planet Normal. Quite frankly, if that doesn't become this year's Christmas number one, says Bob, then we should demand a people's vote in protest. Thanks again to the entire Planet Normal team from Bob. And this is from Alan. Hello, heroes. Last week was Liam podcasting while suffering from an autumn virus. He sounded a bit bunged up and no mention of man flu. What a hero or missed opportunity to milk some co-pilot <laughs> as if. Should we go back to the Vic Sinex nasal spray advert? Oh, my, yes. I can't take my girls with a bunged up nose. Of course you can, Malcolm. <laughs> as for Alison, her weekly incandescence. <laughs> That's good. Yep, just warm, even in darkest Shropshire. So much more effective than a hot air source heat pump, even allowing for her radiant energy dropping proportionally to the square of the distance travelled. It's a tough job you do, says Alan, but never doubt the enormity of the largely silent support that you both enjoy. With much appreciation, Alan. I love my terrible rants being described as incandescence. That lends them an elegance and a charm they don't deserve. Here's a lovely one from Jane. I was teaching war poetry in a class some years ago and talked about those from every community in this land who had been lost. I divided the class into groups, statistically those that would die, those who would be wounded, etc. The kids were shocked and it engaged them to think of individuals rather than the subject. What surprised me later was how many went on to speak to family about how they had been involved or in one case visited the local war memorial to read the names. It isn't just about patriotism or mawkish fascination with war, as one of my colleagues described it, but hopefully learning from history how fragile our world and our freedoms and why people have sacrificed their lives for us to enjoy the democracy we live in and how important it is that we understand that the baton is carried by each generation. And finally, Alison, this is from Nick. In a recent column, Alison, you described Sir Keir Starmer as having all the charisma of a box of Raisin Bran. You outrage as Raisin Bran lovers weighed in. Well, Nick has a suggestion. If you want to compare Stan with a type of breakfast cereal, how about cold porridge? Uh... Land, stodgy, sticky. Apparently used by the BBC sound effects at one time to simulate vomit hitting the floor, <laughs> as scripted in a radio drama. Your podcast is keeping me sane during the current news agenda, says Nick. Thanks so much, co-pilots. And on that, Bombshell, oh. porridge. That's it from Paranormal for another week as we leave our Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our flying refuge of recent views. Email of the week. It's Alison's turn. 
And it's going to go to Father Joseph for that vivid evocation of uh, Charing Cross under siege. So, Father Joseph, send us an email with Mug Winner in the subject heading with your home address and we'll send a Planet Normal mug to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of nice ones there already, so you can have a laugh reading about them. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.